Good morning. We are back. If you want to look with me, we're going to be in Luke 6 and 2 Corinthians 4, and then Matthew 23. Luke 6, 2 Corinthians 4, and Matthew 23 as we dive back into our study of the 12 apostles, these rough around the edges guys that God called to be his messengers. 12 men that Jesus literally transformed over the course of two years to grow from ordinary men to bears and preachers of the extraordinary with God, with the gospel message. And I don't know about you, but as we've gone through the study, these men give me tremendous hope because I look at these guys and the reality of who they are, not the guys in the stained glass windows and like the Catholic churches and cathedrals, but the real life blue collar kind of guys that they were, that they were rough around the edges. They had some issues, I guess you could say, that, that God had to work on and transform. And it's encouraging because I see if God can do this miracle in these 12 men to change them into who they became, then he can do that in us as well. That as we go through with our rough around the edges places, our, our faults, our shorts, our sometimes our tempers or whatever they are, that God can use that as we are willing and submitted to them, to him, that he can change us also. Now, as I was going through this, this week's study, I thought about the fact that there are a lot of people that accept Jesus in salvation, right? I mean, churches are filled with them, right? But here's the kicker. A lot of these people do not want to be transformed. Now, we look at the apostles in our study on these 12 men, and they were radically transformed within just a short amount of time. But think about this. How many Christians come to salvation, come to Jesus, and then nothing happens. Their life doesn't change. Their attitude doesn't change. Nothing changes about them. I think that's a tragedy. Because when we come to salvation, we read through the Bible, there's one thing that is extremely clear, and we've studied it with these 12 apostles, and that's this. Jesus is all about change. Not the coins in your pocket, right? but life transformation, life change. Salvation is about change. Salvation is that point where we go from sinner to saved, from unholy to what? Holy. And again, holy means set apart in a place of honor. We go from unsanctified, in good spiritual church words, to sanctified. We go from damned to hell to guaranteed to heaven. And that's just salvation. The moment of salvation when we accept Jesus, right? It's about change. And when Jesus comes into our life, it's about change in the fact that he looks at us and he says, well, in spite of who you are, I love you anyway. In spite of where you've been and what you've done, I love you anyway. But I want to transform you into who you can be. And Christianity is literally all about change. So if you're here this morning and you're hearing this, get ready, because today's message is about what? Change. Change. Practical application number one for the sermon, we have to be willing to be changed by God to feel the full effect of our salvation. If we go through life and remain the same, then we've missed the point of salvation, of Christianity, and of a relationship with Jesus. I mean, you just bring it down to, to bare brass knuckles. When you find someone and suddenly in your love, you're in love, you change, don't you? You change how you speak, how you act, what you think. 
And that's the same in our love relationship with Jesus, that Christianity is not one of those religions that tries to build up and reach to attain God. But God reached down to us while we were yet sinners and brought us his salvation and changed us in that love relationship. So, practical application number one, allow God to change you because that's what this is really all about. To change you from who you are or who you've been who you can become. So, all that said, let's dig into Luke 6. Luke 6 chapter, or Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. This is the message again about Jesus calling the 12 apostles. Start off with this, verse 12. I'm reading out a New American Standard. And it says, And it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So we'll stop there. Now I'm thinking as we, we've gone over these apostles the last couple of weeks that our study of the apostles is not necessarily deeply theological, right? But it is about digging into the truth of God's word about these men in a very practical, real-life situation to see how what God did in them, he can do in us. So hopefully you're being blessed by these messages and God is speaking to you because God gives us these men and his examples to relate with, to understand, to see how we are often like them, right? And how God can change us. Now we're about halfway through. We've made it through six. Thanks all of you for keeping up. We got six more to go. And today we are going to meet Matthew. Now we've emphasized the commonness of these men. And uh, by now, if you cannot repeat Luke chapter six, verses 12 to 16, either you haven't been here or you've been here and been asleep, right? Because we've read it every single week for like nine weeks now. Um, we've also repeated the fact that all of these men, except for perhaps Judas the betrayer, were seekers of God. While all is going around them, these men are seeking the scriptures of the time and they're looking for the Messiah. Practical application number two. When we come to church, we should be seeking God. I mean, we come actively. So often we go to church, and if you, we've been in big churches, we've been in little churches, and people sometimes come and they sit down and they just kind of go through the motions, right? You figure out the routine of the service, you come in, you find your favorite spot, you sit there, and then you go on autopilot for about an hour, right? When we come to church, this is the place where God says, where two or more of you are gathered, I am what? There amongst your midst. Where you are, I am there with you. And remember that God wants to change us and to speak to us and to listen to us. It's a relationship exchange. It's not just about going through motions and, and checking the box of saying, hey, I sang three songs in worship today, and I went to church, and I heard a Bible verse, and whew, now it's time to go home and take a nap. It's about listening for God. Listening for God. Looking for God. These men were seeking the true Messiah in the midst of all the Jewish religion that was going on around it around them and the one thing that's different about these men is when jesus came on the scene 
we've realized one thing in just the study of the last six, that they got it. Because when Jesus appeared and said, follow me, they jumped up and went. Now, at this same time, in all the synagogues or churches of the times, there were all the Jews, all the people coming in on a regular basis, hearing the word of God, having worship, being instructed by the priests, the Pharisees, and the others, and they didn't get it when Jesus came on. And that's the difference. And my take on the difference is this. The apostles were men that were seeking the true Messiah. Not a form of religion that you just go through the motions and you do your due diligence once or twice a week, that you follow rules and laws, but they were seeking the Messiah that changes lives, that heals hearts, that gives vision and hope, and brings forth transformation. The religious leaders of the time, in their good religious fashion, when Jesus came on the scene, Instead of having love and faith, what did they want to do with Jesus? Kill him. Well, that's really spiritual, isn't it? You know, open your Bible to First and Second Hezekiah 3.16. It says, if you don't like someone, well, then just take them out and kill them. Right? It's amazing the contrast the Bible presents with these men versus the religious leaders. Here's the religious leaders that are supposed to be the, the smarty pants of the whole group that understand about the forthcoming Messiah and all the prophecies and all that's coming. And when he appears on the scene, he irritates them so much that they just want to get rid of him. And when they can't get rid of him, they make that chest move to kill him. Well, that says something. That makes a huge statement, doesn't it, about what they really believed. They weren't really seeking the Messiah. They just wanted to have control over this religion and go through things and be proud of how great they were. And on the other hand, in the contrast, we have the apostles that are going through their day-to-day, -day, doing their regular jobs, doing what they do, but in their spare time, they were looking for God. Looking for God. Now that's important because the Bible tells us that if we look for God, if we seek Him, once again, we will what? We will find Him. We will find Him. So I hope all of us are here today looking for God because that's where he seeks to come and speak to you. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about the religious leaders of the time. If you're with me in 2 Corinthians 4, and then we'll be in Matthew 23, Paul writes about these religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests. He writes about them this way, about missing the gospel, the gospel <coughs> being the good news of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6, he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled or covered up, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, and who's the God of the world according to the Bible? Satan. Satan. In the, in the case of the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, Let light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, because these men weren't truly seeking God, they allowed Satan 
to blind them spiritually where they couldn't even grasp the truth. Now, you and I have lots of friends that are in that condition, right? They are living the worldly life. They are going through. Some of them think they're even, you know, morally good, but their eyes have been blinded. Which brings us to the next practical, practical application that we should be praying and interceding for them for that blindness, that spiritual blindness be lifted from their eyes that they too can see God. Now Jesus also goes on in Matthew 23 and he speaks about these religious people that have their minds blinded. And I think this is important so that we don't fall into the same trap of religion that they fell into. Instead, we are in the camp of relationship with the living God. Jesus speaks very bluntly in Matthew 23, verses 27 to 33, and he says this. Notice these subtle, endearing, calm words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Oh man, he's subtle, isn't he? He outright calls them hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Someone who states their one thing, but lives a life that is exactly opposite of what they state. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So you too hourly appear, right at, appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Would not have been. Would not have been, yes, excuse me. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Wow. How would you like that statement about your life? Man, that's just blunt, isn't it? It's like you're supposed to be the ones that are leading people to the gospel, and yet you are the ones who are condemning them to hell. And if you don't believe in hell, well, Jesus says it right here. He says these guys are headed to hell. They're on the highway to hell on the fast track, right? They're moving quickly. These men had title. They had position. They had education. They had financial means. They had all of that. But different than the apostles, they were not seeking God, the Messiah. And in Jesus' eyes, they were frauds, they were hypocrites, they were fakes, and they were damned to hell. So, practical application number six. You don't have to be rich to seek Jesus. You don't have to be smart to seek Jesus. Thank goodness for me. Wow. Pass that one, right? You don't have to be educated to seek Jesus. You don't have to have a title or position. You just have to be someone who desires that relationship with God and is willing to be changed by him to have his salvation, to have a relationship with him, and to be forgiven by God. That's where we are today. So transition time, back to Matthew, the seventh apostle. For starters, Matthew was a very common name at the time, nothing special about it. But we do know this about Matthew, um, that he was also called Levi in Mark and Luke. And there's not a lot of background given about Matthew. Pretty much the only thing we know about him is that the time of when Jesus called him and when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was 
a tax collector. Now, everybody loves a tax collector, right? Well, at this time, tax collectors were extremely bad because Matthew was Jewish, yet who was he collecting taxes from? The Jews. And who was he collecting those taxes for? The Romans. So here is a man who has left his culture, who has turned his back on them, who is now working for the enemy because the Jews didn't want Rome to rule over them, right? But Matthew is actually taking money from his own people and he's given it to their enemies to enhance them to rule over his people. So first off, the Jewish culture would have seen Matthew as a man that had gone AWOL and left his post, right? He was a traitor. He was a traitor. In fact, the Jews often believed that because he had sold out and gone with the enemy, that God would not even look upon him. He was abandoned by their God because he was such a bad, bad, bad man. Now, we also know that tax collectors were not the most reputable men of the time, right? Because here's the first thing they did. They lied. If you were a good Jew, Matthew would come to you and he'd look at the books and he'd be like, he'd see on there that the Roman government said, hey, you owe $300 in taxes. And Matthew would look at that and say, huh, well, I found something in here. You actually owe $500 in taxes. And he would give the 300 to the Roman government. And then what would he do with the extra 200? Right in the pocket, right? So often these tax collectors were traitors, liars, and in a modern version, we would call them a thief, right? They were stealing from their own people, stealing from Rome. They didn't care where they got the money as long as they got it, right? Their goal was money and financial gain and status. They were protected by Rome. And I look at this. So here he is, we have Matthew. He's abandoned his own culture. He's a traitor, he's a liar, he's a thief kind of guy you want to pick to represent God, right? Well, again, I look at this and I think, this is the miracle. Because here is a man that none of the Jews want to have around. And in fact, the Romans only kept him around because he uh, was useful to them, right? He collected the taxes. He knew how to get to the people. He knew what they did and where they lived. Matthew is not the kind of guy that you would pick out of a crowd and say, hey, Let's have this guy represent Jesus. That's going to be great, right? In fact, what would you think about Matthew? He's exactly the opposite, right, of who you'd want to be representing God. But the miracle is that when Jesus sees him, he sees Matthew not for who he is, not for what he's done, but for who he can be. And I think as I've gone through this, when Jesus sees Matthew, because Jesus doesn't look at our outward appearance so much, right? Where does he look? In the depths of our heart, what's really going on? I think Jesus saw a troubled man, a hurting man. Now, men don't hurt, right? We don't cry. Ha, <laughs> right. When God looks into our hearts, he sees things that we don't present on the outside. We can present a solid, confident exterior. But inside, when you get down to it, oftentimes we're hurting. We're lonely. We're desperate for a relationship with anybody. 
we're lost. And I think when Jesus saw Matthew there in his tax booth, that in spite of the Roman guard, in spite of who was there, in spite of the traitorship and the lying and the thieving, Jesus looks at Matthew and he sees a man whose heart is so troubled. Why would his heart be troubled? Well, all the things we've just mentioned, right? You're a traitor to your own people. You're, you know you're lying and cheating. You know you're a thief. You know you're doing all these bad things and trying to present a, a good exterior. Well, you got the money to get away with it because you've been pocketing all these taxes, but you have no friends that will really stand by you. You only have the crowd of other tax collectors that you hang out with, and you know they're the same kind of people as you are, so you really can't trust them, right? On the exterior, Matthew was not the kind of guy to represent God. But on the interior, where Jesus sees beyond the facade, I think he saw a man with a broken heart, a man who was searching, a man who was hurting, a man who was lonely, a man who was crying out for someone just to be a friend, a man who was crying out for someone just to accept him for who he was in spite of all those things. And there was no one. You have those times in your heart where, yeah, you can put on a good front. Well, I can do short man syndrome really easy, right? I can puff up like a peacock, I'm pretty confident. But what's really in the depths of our heart? Do you have times when you're in a crowd of people and yet you're lonely? Do you have times in, when you're in church or someplace, you're listening to the radio about all the love songs and you feel like nobody wants you? Do you have times where you're successful but you feel like a loser? Do you have times where you're looking confident but you really just want to fall down and cry? Jesus sees that. He looks beyond our exterior and he sees what's inside. And when we're in that place, he sees that. He sees that individual that you and I are trying to hide and cover up that nobody really knows of sometimes how insecure and lonely and hurting we really are. And that's where he wants to speak to us just like Matthew. That's the miracle of Matthew's life. On the exterior, confident, good-looking, rich, all the good stuff. But on the inside, a wounded heart lonely heart, a desperate heart. And Jesus calls him. Jesus takes this liar, traitor, thief, and over the course of two years, he turns him into an evangelist, and a preacher, a man of humility. And we know that because we know that some 40 years later, after Jesus was crucified, that Matthew would write the gospel of Matthew, right? I mean, Matthew didn't just meet Jesus, he wrote a book about him. Pretty cool. How many of you Christians have written a book about Jesus and your relationship with him? I haven't done it yet, right? Matthew also in there, when he was a tax collector, had to be bold and brash, right? 
because he had to demand taxes from the people. He had to be the guy that says, I don't care what you think or if you don't have the money, you've got to have it by midnight tonight. Matthew had to be a bold man. But in the Gospel of Matthew, some 40 years later, we see a man of humility. And do you know how we see that? Matthew only speaks of himself in literally one or two sentences in the whole Gospel of Matthew. He doesn't draw the attention on him. He puts it on God. Do you want to know where that is? We'll come back next week and I'll tell you. Bad pastor, no. Nothing like setting you up to pull the rug right out from underneath you, right? Look with me in Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. This is the one or two sentences that Matthew, depending on the, which translation of the Bible you read, the one or two sentences that Matthew actually writes about himself in the whole Gospel of Matthew. And he writes these words. He says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. That's it. Matthew writes this whole gospel, and he only mentions himself once in the whole gospel. And all he says is, there was a guy named Matthew, and Jesus came and said, follow me. And he got up and he followed that's it. Do you see where Matthew has gone from a proud, demanding individual as a tax collector to a man of humility that he says, it's not about me. It is about the transformation that Jesus did in my life. That's what's important. That's what you got to catch. But I'm writing to you about Jesus because he's what's important. Now that's pretty amazing. And in a modern term, here's how kind of how I see it. I see Matthew sitting there and envisioning this in his mind because I kind of like to go there, you know. And I see Matthew in his booth collecting taxes and Jesus walks by and says, dude, I'd like to give you a second chance when nobody else will. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know what you've been doing. I know what you're doing now. I know who you are. And I know nobody else in this whole town will give you a second chance or a second glance. But dude, I think I can help make you a new man. I think you and I, as we have a relationship together, can put the past behind and you can be a better man. Come on, why don't you take a walk with me? Now, if you're desperate and you're hurting, and you heard those words from someone when nobody else would give you a second chance, and here's a guy that comes on the scene and says, come with me. I'll give you a second chance. Wouldn't that impact you? It would me. That's exactly what happens to us when we finally came to salvation, right? We read in Romans 5 about this amazing transformation of when we were hurting, we were lost, and Jesus came and said, hey, come and walk with me. Follow me. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. But let's put that on a shelf because I'm the only one in town that's going to give you a second chance. Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. For while we were still, what's the word there? Weak, helpless, New American Standard says helpless. It says, for a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the who? Ungodly. 
The ungodly? Oh, you got to be kidding me. Wouldn't a Savior die for the godly? No, he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know who, he, who Christ died for? The undeserving. This is not fair. The whole gospel is not fair. Because God does all the work, and we get the benefits. For the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God. Oh, it's great in the gospel when you hear, but God. Because that's intervention time. That's when God steps in. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward who? Us? you got to be kidding me. We're Matthews. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while they were, we were still yet, what? Sinners. Oh, come on. God dying for sinners? What kind of a crazy world is this? God should die for godly people, right? And while that we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Man, the gospel is so unfair. What do sinners deserve? Hell. Hell, death. I remember, I think we've, we've talked about it before, I remember hearing a missionary son, he was on a bus, and he was with a bunch of kids, and they were going down to this little place to do some, some service work for a group, and it's like in Arizona, and it's hot, and it's sweaty, and you know, it's the old kind of school bus without the, the air conditioning, so the kids, you know, it's, it's 110 degrees outside, and the windows are down, and you know, the air that's blowing in is super hot, and all these kids are like, oh, yeah, we're going to help these people, oh man, it's so hot, it's sweaty, oh geez, this is terrible, it's in the heat of the day, oh, we don't deserve this, and the missionary kid looks up, and he says, yeah, you're right, you deserve hell. It's even hotter there, <laughs> right? Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Matthew was a sinner and Christ died for him because Jesus came on the scene and saw his heart that was hurting and desperate for a relationship and desperate for hope and desperate for salvation. And Jesus says, I recognize that and I can answer. I can speak to those needs. Practical application number 943. If you're hurting, if you're lonely, if you feel like you're insignificant or worthless or invaluable that maybe you've done stuff or said stuff that you can't take back, and if people saw that, they would just cry out how ugly it was. Jesus wants to know you. And he doesn't just want to know you. He wants to heal that spot in your heart. And he wants to show you that you mean something. And I'll tell you what, I've come to realize in my short time on this, this earth that, you know, we grow up and we strive so hard to, to look good to people, right? Especially like in junior high and high school and I was like, 
you know, you gotta be all that. But I would rather give that up just to look good to God, to be accepted by Him. Because that's what's important. So if you're that person that has those struggles in your life where nobody can see but you know is there, then Jesus is knocking on your door saying, hey, let me come in. I, I want to sit down. I, I want to talk with you. I want to go through this with you. I want to heal you. I want to help you. I want to show you you're important. You're valuable. You know, the Bible says that when one person comes to salvation, the angels in heaven rejoice. I mean, can you see, the Bible calls them myriads and myriads. In other words, hundreds of thousands and hundreds of thousands and hundreds of thousands of angels. When someone comes to salvation, they're out there going, whoot, 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 whoot. I mean, they're excited. They're stoked. All of heaven is going, yes. We forget that sometimes, don't we? If you and I are in salvation in Jesus Christ, like what Matthew came to, then you are a changed person. And no longer are you invaluable, you are extremely valuable. No longer are you unloved, you are tremendously loved. For Christ put his arms on the cross this wide and said, this is how much I love you. No longer are you insignificant, you're significant. No longer are you without a purpose, you have a purpose. No longer are you damned to hell, you're guaranteed to heaven. That's the story of Matthew. Next practical application. When Jesus comes to you for the first time, third time, 14th time, 6,922nd time, and says, follow me, because we've strayed away, how long should it take you to respond? When God gives you a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, because we blow it a lot of times, right? We should respond immediately. And that's what Matthew does. When Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And if you're in a place in life where you have wandered away, and you hear, and you hear Jesus' voice saying today, hey, dude, do that. Come on, follow me. It should take you that long to respond and say, yes, I'll follow you. Now that's all that Matthew tells us about himself. There was a dude named Matthew, bad dude, bad bad to the bone, right? And Jesus saw beyond that and said, come on, follow me. And he did. And he changed his life to where we know he wrote an entire gospel about Christ and about how Christ saved and changed him. Matthew didn't talk a lot about himself because the focus was Jesus. So now we look to Luke. Luke 25. Luke 5, I'm sorry. Not 25, Luke 5. Luke talks a little bit more about Matthew, which I think is tremendously important to see the radical change in his life of what God does when he comes and he says, follow me, and we respond, and he changes us. Luke 5. Luke was ahead of his time. Any of you ever see Star Wars? Luke. Use the force, Luke, right? Bad jokes. Doesn't get any better than that. Here's what salvation should be like. I think this is so cool. And for 30 years of my life, I've passed over it. This is what should happen when salvation comes and God changes us. Matthew, pre-Christ, is a tax collector. Matthew doesn't have a lot of friends, but what kind of friends or what kind of acquaintances does he have? 
liars, thieves, cheats, right? Anyone in that, what we would call bottom of the barrel group, right? Because those were the only people that would hang out with him. The good, righteous, pious Jews would not hang out with him. His family probably rejected him. So Matthew has like-minded people with him, right? Liars, thieves, bad people. But here's what happens to Matthew. When Jesus says, follow me, he follows him, and he's so excited about the transformation that God does initially in his life that he throws a party. And you know who he doesn't invite? The religious people. Who does he invite? The liars, the thieves, the drunks, the prostitutes, the, the bad people. Because those are the only people that he knew. How cool would it be when you and I, if we first came to salvation, we go back, we take all our bad buddies and invite them to a party to meet Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? Here's what he does. Luke 5, verse 27 to 32. And after that, Jesus went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. We know that part of the story. And Matthew left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of, oh, no, who's there? Pats collectors, oh my gosh. And other people who reclined at the table with them. Oh, transition time. Verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling. Well, that's real spiritual, isn't it? Doesn't the New Testament say not to grumble? And here these guys are, what are they doing? being unspiritual again. They're grumbling, they're complaining. And they were grumbling about the disciples, to the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You're supposed to be spiritual and you're having a party with lowlifes. What the heck are you doing? And Jesus answered and said, it is not those who, need, who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous sinners to repentance. Now that's pretty cool. The only people that Matthew knows are the lowlifes like himself. But he is so excited about this new relationship with Jesus that he throws a reception, he throws a party, and he invites them all, and he invites Jesus, the man who's changed his life, and all his apostles, and all his disciples, and here come the spiritual people. You know the spiritual people? You ever meet some of them? You walk in and they're like, oh, can't talk to that one, right? They're too pious. They're too good for you, right? And you are not what? Good enough to be in their church, in their presence. And here's Jesus, the so-called Messiah. And he's with all these people. And the first he's like, oh, you can't be the Messiah. You're not holy enough. Right? Can you imagine what's going through Jesus' mind right now? You bunch of idiots. They're too pious. And Jesus looks and basically says, I call those who, are, who know who are in sin, and they know they need help beyond themselves. I don't care about you people who are so pious and righteous and holy and prideful and too goody two-shoes that you're no good to anybody. Remember what we read earlier in Matthew? Jesus tells them that basically they're already condemned to where? Hell. No wonder they had a problem with Jesus, right? 
But Jesus confronts them and says, until you guys can realize your sin. Yeah, you look good on the outside. Yeah, you're popular. Yeah, you're educated. Yeah, you got a title. Yeah, you got an office with a corner window in it. But that ain't nothing until you can admit that you're a sinner. The contrast is Jesus with all these people. And they could admit that they were in sin. They knew they were liars. They knew they were cheats. They knew they were traitors. And that's you and I, isn't it? And I hope so. I hope we're not in the other camp. And for anybody who looks at God and says, well, you can't have fun as a Christian. F-U-N, first three letters in funeral, right? Well, they haven't read Luke. Because where is Jesus with Matthew and his disciples and apostles? They're at the reception. They're at the party with the sinners. Not to say we should go out and have a party like this. I don't think Jesus was doing the things they were doing, but he was there to present his help, himself and his hope to them in their sin. He met them where they were at. Part of the struggle that the religious leaders had about Jesus was he hung out with those people that the world called unlovely, untouchable, unlovable, not good enough. Because he knew that they were willing to admit who they are and willing to accept help to become something better. I know from my own life that I was ugly as a sinner. And when I came to salvation and that 2.4 seconds of actually coming to salvation, I did not all of a sudden become good looking, right? But what changed was inside. And eventually what's inside oozes its way out to what? The outside. For the Pharisees, and the religious leaders, what was dead on the inside eventually came out because they crucified the Messiah. Oh, that's spiritual. That's godly. You know, God is love and let's just kill someone in the name of Christ. Well, it came out, right? But with the apostles and with Matthew, what Jesus did in that moment in the inside began to ooze out over 40 years for Matthew to write the gospel that we read today all about what Jesus did and how he changed him and saved him. See, that's where God works. When we read that love covers a multitude of sins, Jesus lived it. And he wants to live it with us. Matthew, because of his own life choices, his occupation, everything he'd done at one time was a tortured soul. And we too have been tortured souls, right? But Jesus comes in and ushers that his love covers a multitude of sins, that his love covers the past, heals the loneliness, heals the wounds, and gives us hope. The thing I love about Matthew that stands out to me so much is it shows how practical and real salvation is. It's not hard. You don't have to be good enough to come to Jesus. You just have to be willing to follow when he says what? Follow me. That's all you got to do. 
Maybe you're like Matthew this morning. And you know that God's looking into the depths of your heart. He doesn't see the exterior. He sees what's there. And in the depth of, their, of your heart, there's someone crying out going, I need help. I need someone just to love me. I need someone just to see me. And Jesus says, I'll be that guy. I'll love you. I'll see you. I'll stay with you. I'll walk through life with you. And I'll show you how important and lovely and beautiful and handsome and necessary you really are. That's Matthew. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so many of us struggle in life with insecurities and things we've done in our past or said, the failures we've had, and even without that, Lord, we just struggle with what Hollywood and the world throws out of us, of, of the standard. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning in the depths of our hearts and heal us and be with us and walk with us. Love upon us, Lord, when nobody else will. Give us that second chance, and Lord, change our lives that we make ourselves available to you. We admit that we have been in sin. We admit we need change and we want to follow you. In Jesus' name.